Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of Soho Radio's Composers on Film. I'm your host Gemma Dempsey and I'm very pleased to welcome Adrian Corker to the studios today, who I learned just before we started uh, the interview has actually been to the studios of Soho Radio, had his own show some time back, so he'll be familiar with this space and you may be familiar to, uh, to the work of Adrian Corker from his work on Face uh, with Antonio Bird or the excellent noir western series Tin Star, created by Rowan Joffe, starring Tim Roth and and Joffrey has remarked that without Adrian's music, the show would be incomplete. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you. Hi. 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 It's really good to have you. And just talking about the music that we started today's show with, it's one of the first of your musical choices. And it's Toru Takemetsu. It's from the album John Adams with, well, John Adams with London Symphonietta and his film music, of which he did quite a number of, of scores and I was wondering when did you f- first come to his music and what attracted you to it? Quite a long time ago I think because that album was a compilation on Nonsuch of his film music and I think a lot of his film scores are quite hard to get because there were obviously a lot of the, them were Japanese films and Japanese pressings um, and that film for example I've never seen that film it's like a lot of film music I guess with people they've not seen the film but they've heard the music and uh, I think that's a kind of documentary piece from a, a, a documentary about a Puerto Rican boxer from 1958 which when I just listened to it then it was kind of hard to imagine how those two things would fit together but then you know I think there was a kind of greater space between the picture and and the music and uh, what was deemed where the composer could go in those days you know Uh, whereas I think now kind of the gap is maybe a bit a bit smaller Um, but yeah you know it's just um it's just one of those pieces of music that, I mean, it's quite bluesy, actually, I, I realised listening to it, even though it's a Japanese composer. I think that was, um, you know, the other thing that I quite liked about him is he kind of straddles West Western music and Japanese music and also like the commercial side, things like film music. But he was also a contemporary composer who, you know, did quite challenging uh, sort of post-war uh, material. Mm. So, you know, I always find that interesting when you can do both. Yeah, I sort of went down a little bit of a Takemetsu tunnel last night when I was lo- looking up and hearing how he'd come to love Western ca- classical music while he was in the military service. And that had kind of turned him off Japanese music, but then he later come ba- came back to it. And, and uh, yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, because obviously after the Second World War, Japan nationalism was, or anything to do with J- Japan and its past identity had, you know, problems. So sort of for young people like Takamitsu, I think they were looking to the West. You know, it's the same thing happened in Germany for, you know, musical, um, 
you know, musical ideas to be taken from the West and to be sort of re-assimilated and, and, and you know, sort of recreated into a, into a post-war new language. But I think over time he kind of, yeah, became more comfortable with the sort of rich heritage of Japanese music and, you know, I mean, I, I actually learned the shakuhachi really badly for a while, um, not because of Takemitsu, kind of for other reasons, but, and he was one of those composers that, um, you know, he would incorporate, you know, traditional Japanese folk instruments alongside orchestras mm. and write these very beautiful um, orchestrations that were very, you know, very sort of sensual and, uh, what's the word? Yeah, just not kind of hefty, very, very, you know, sensual and, and light and very interesting, the colours that you could get out of um, acoustic instruments. Mm. And I, I read the, the New York Times referred to his work as showing an extraordinary command of styles and resources that make the music fascinating, even without the screen images. And so I think you just referred to that, that how strong the music is without whether or not you've seen the film. Which I think is also something that I, you know, having grown up at that period... In the 70s, where, you know, there was a little weird golden age of, you know, very exploratory music in film alongside quite sort of, you know, commercial films or films that at least would end up in a lot of cinemas all around the world. Um, so, yeah, I've always, you know, quite liked music that exists independent and that you can listen to as pieces of music. Because um, I know a lot of film music, particularly these days, seems to be functional. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, very interesting developments, obviously, the kind of way that sound design and electronic produced music can kind of blur and how you can go in and out of those worlds and create some interesting new sort of um, ways of working. But, yeah, I still quite like it when someone's got an idea and they just hit the screen with it and you kind of know about it, really. Mm, I, I concur. And let's get on to the second piece, and it's Ennio Morricone. Uh, it comes from a film I'd never heard of before, Che l'hai visto morire, Who Saw Her Die. Um, I think let's just play it, because I think it's quite playful in its own way, and then we'll talk about it. I'm really curious. Had you seen the film before or discovered the music first? Um, well, I mean, obviously, Morricone's music is such an old, tried and tested. If anyone's written film music, you know, they always go, you know, how can you not reference him? But that film was something that during lockdown, um, I kind of went down a bit of a, a rabbit hole of giallo films and things that I hadn't seen from the early 70s. Um, and... That was one of those films. And, and you know, I think, um, yeah, so it's quite an unusual score because it's that period in the early 70s, I think, before he started doing the big... It's in between his kind of quite experimental stuff that he was doing in the, in the 60s, like the music uh, concrete stuff with Grupo Il Nuovo Consonanza. I can never remember the full name. Um, and then, you know, what he did later, obviously, where he was doing sort of big Hollywood scores and very lush romantic films it's somewhere in between the two which i find quite interesting and uh yeah it's kind of playful i mean it's got kids voices even though the film is a horror mm. um it's quite a dark film you know like a lot of those jello they're kind of genre films but you know it's kind of got a bit of funk to it and um you know just unusual arrangements and i think a lot of that music was done really fast you know quite often i think he had an arranger that he would just write the music and he would just give it to his arranger i can't remember it 
can't remember his name now, but he would just literally conduct it and, you know, he'd just be doing this week in, week out, like a, a factory. But the quality of the work and just the ability to just sort of, you know, kind of keep innovating. Mm. I mean, it still sounds fresh now, you know, which is... But I think it is that process where, you know, there's a period where there was an ac access to a lot of... You know, I think in Rome then there was access to a lot of, uh, you know, there was a studio where a lot of this stuff was done. And, you know, I think a lot of this stuff tends to, when there's a little burst of musical creativity, it's not just about one person, but there'll be a place and a bunch of people and studios and all those things interlock and create like these little magic moments for a while. Mm. And then it changes. And I managed to find a trailer on, on YouTube and was struck immediately how it reminded me of Don't Look Now. Yeah, same kind of era. And it might even have been you know, some kind of, you know, pulp, cheaper version of that. Um, yeah, because the early 70s, there was, that, was, that was the kind of vibe. And, you know, Jallo, for people who don't know, was based on these pulp novels that were, Jallo means yellow, so they were, I think they were printed in some sort of yellow colour. So I guess it's the equivalent of A24 now, if I was, you know, maybe that's a bit unfair to A24, but, you know, very genre-based work um, that, you know, kind of, yeah is sort of tongue-in-cheek sometimes, but is, uh, you know, got one foot firmly in the sort of horror camp as well. You know, well, I'm, I'm curious to see the whole thing because it's got um, Anita Strindberg and yeah. George Lazenby, so yeah. it's probably one of those uh, rainy afternoons. Um, so the next one, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, is it L'Indomptable by Michelle Bukowski? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so Michelle, she's born in Cannes, French-based composer. I mean, I've, again, I've never seen these films. I know her work um, because, you know, I know something of GRM or Group Recherche Musicale, who are like one of the post-war French um, sort of, yeah, music concrete studios or electroacoustic, I guess the music's called now, where they were using... Um, you know, just the, the technology that was invented during the Second World War, things like tape recorders. And after the war, when there was all this sort of redundant gear, it kind of found its way into these sort of new studios. And, you know, people started making early electronic music. You know, you could cut up tape and you could loop stuff and you could start processing things, playing things back at different speeds. I think GRM invented... Um, I mean, a lot of film composers probably know the plugins that are everywhere that are used. You can hear them on a lot of modern film music. Mm. I've used them as well. And um, But yeah, they just used to invent equipment to put sound through, I think, back in those days. And a few years ago, a friend of mine, um, Lucy Relton, and well, and, and Aisha Orozbayeva, two string players I worked with, were curating a thing called the London Contemporary Music Festival. And they put on an event of um, one of GRM's like foremost artists, Bernard Parmigiani. So, and I got to hear this work, which is, you know, played over 60 speakers in like an old carpet factory off Brick Lane, because that's really what a lot of this music is. It's like multi-channel, multi, multi -channel, many speakers, so it's not stereo necessarily, even though, so this woman is someone who's done, comes from GRM, electroacoustic background, but I think her husband is a filmmaker, mm -hmm. so she's writing music for his films. But um, this was a, a CD that came out this year of like a compilation of like the music from some of his films that she wrote. Yeah, that's what, what I found. I think his husband's called Patrick, um, Patrick Bukanowski. And she also studied under Pierre Schaeffer. So mm -hmm. to my understanding that he was one of the, the main music concrete yeah, creators. Yeah, yeah. But I never made that connection between Second World War, the technology, tape, radio. Well, maybe I'm being a bit simplistic, but I think, you know, that's how I understand it. You yeah. know, a lot of... 
that equipment, you know, that became part of the, you know, entertainment world post-war was, was technology that was invented during the Second World War. Found its way then, you know, after the Second World War into another commercial use, if we can call war a commercial use, which I guess it is. All right, let's hear the piece. faded out of Michelle Bukanowski and next up is we're going to turn to uh, the wonders of Soho Radio Studio Lola has it on Spotify lined up because for some it was hardly tracked down online I've only got it on vinyl ah yeah. well that's that's a good <laughs> excuse um it's John Lurie and tell us a bit about why you like this piece um I mean again I think this one is is a film that I did see um probably around the time it's a Jim Jarmusch film I think maybe one of his earliest if not his first um, and yeah, you know, I mean, it's partly, again, he was a jazz musician, came out of that downtown, no wave, New York scene of the late seventies. Um, he had a jazz band called the Lounge Lizards and, you know, it's just, it almost sounds like a kind of Morton Feldman piece or something. It's still got that New York feel about it. You know, I like the fact it's very stark and minimal that it's a, a very small ensemble. It's played live. Um, but it's still got an atmosphere, you know, there's no electronics in it, obviously, but it's got an atmosphere that is, you know, kind of a unique thing and kind of reminds me, I guess, of, um, yeah, that bit late 70s, early 80s where New York was kind of happening and, I mean, well, I was just sitting outside waiting, I heard Blondie play twice, so obviously, you know, everyone, <laughs> there's still kind of the effect of it in pop music world as well, but, you know, I think it was an amazing little period and I just caught the tail end of that. But, you know, so a piece of music like this in this film, which was all shot in black and white, um, you know, kind of always stuck with me, really. and very calming. I, I was listening to that on my much-delayed train on the way in today, so <laughs> thank you for that. And the next one is theme from The Conversation. Such an amazing movie, uh, scored by David Shire, and which came first for this one? Was it the movie, then the score? Yeah, the movie. I mean, I think when I was um, a kid, I was talking to a friend who I worked with, Takuma Watanabe, who's a bit younger than me, but, you know, we have this fascination with this era of 70s films. He's a film composer in Japan. And, you know, when I was growing up, you'd kind of have a little black and white telly somewhere in the house and you'd creep down at night and, you know, you'd turn it on and you'd get to see these weird films. And that's how, you know, so I, I think I saw this as a kid. And again, that's a strange thing that, you know, as a Gen Xer, I was seeing films that were way... And it was the goal when you were young to see films that were like 18s when you were 11, which seems shocking now, you know. Um, but so I saw a lot of quite adult movies, not adult adult, but adult as in themed movies when I was a kid. And this was definitely one that I saw on TV one night and it always stuck with me. And the, the and you know, um, 
the beginning of the film is really interesting because it's like Walter Murch. I mean, I only discovered this later, but Walter Murch did all the sound design on the conversation, which again is what's so amazing about it. And um, there's this whole beginning bit where he's, you don't really know what this sound is and where it's coming from. Um, but, and it's Walter Murch doing this sound design, but it's an integral part of the plot and it opens up and then you discover it's about Gene Hackman, who's, you know, spying on, uh, people, is it Gene Hackman who's mm -hmm. doing the spine? Yeah, um, using you know microphones. Um, so yeah, Walter Mitchell's sound design is really amazing. This again is a very simple, simple but really effective piece of music it's played on the piano. Um, and yeah, that era of just paranoia, <laughs> dystopian paranoia, which seems to be coming back. Mm -hmm. if it's not been around for quite a while. Um, again, was some of the first things that I experienced in film world. So I've always got a soft spot for a bit of a dystopian, paranoid film. And was that what sort of laid the groundwork for your interest in film and then music, would you say? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I think when I was growing up, I was just exposed very early age to music like this without even really knowing who did it or how it was done. And not just music like this, but a lot of electronic music as well, which again was quite... Um, omnipresent in the 70s, you know, you'd get, you know, everyone knows the Radiophonic Workshop, you know, that was all over the TV, but, you know, there was other things as well. So, yeah, you know, I think it was just in the air and it always was quite progressive, you know, it hadn't become a thing. And I think it was an era where film music kind of spread its wings a little bit before we went to the box office era, late 70s of the Star Wars and the summer blockbusters, which never sort of left since, really. Mm. Well, let's go back to the 70s and the conversation. All right, well, those were some of your musical loves and inspirations and... And now, Adrian, we're going to listen to some of your music, finally. Um, the first piece is from Tin Star. And for those people who have made the mistake of not checking out the series yet, um, would you like to kind of give a little synopsis of what it's about? Uh, well, it was Tim Roth playing a British policeman who fled Britain due to some backstory that only got revealed later on and he ends up in the, the, the Rockies in this small town and um, he kind of the end of the first episode uh, something very violent happens to one of his family members and it sort of unleashes this other dark alter ego in Tim Roth's character and it's kind of a mixture of like yeah there's like a western element there's a sort of Lynchian, surreal, kind of strange, locals in the middle of nowhere element. There's a very comedic element. Um, it's kind of lots of different things. And musically, it was really great for that. But, you know, it, it's not one of those things that just had one atmosphere. So musically, you had to move around and be able to one minute work with banjo players, the next, yeah, you'd work, I worked a lot with um, different ensembles and orchestras um, because there's lucky, luckily enough, the, the budget to do that. And um, yeah, there's three seasons of it. The last season ended up in Liverpool, which was uh, 
how it ended. And that was, uh, I finished that, I think, during lockdown, sitting at home. <laughs> <laughs> like most of us. Yeah. Um, well, not all of us creating a soundtrack. But uh, it was on, released on silver screen, but then you... Is it on, on, did it come out on your label? On, yeah, on well, we, I set up... A, I have a little label called SM Variations, which releases um, kind of... <laughs> I, I just say on popular music and then that shuts the conversation down, but it's kind of <laughs> classical, you know, young the young musicians that I've known and worked with over the last 10 or 12 years, you know, a lot of the kind of music that uh, was part of the, the scenes of music makers that I uh, work with. So, you know, you'd re do music by composers like John Cage or Chelsea, but also, you know, pieces by, you know, people like Chris Watson, who's a field recordist who mm. did the music for Chernobyl with Hilda Goodnadotta, uh, lots of different things, but, you know, generally kind of new, um, interesting, uh, amazingly talented musicians and composers based in London predominantly. The other label I set up, and it's trying to be a bit broader, so it's called Constructive, and we've released a couple of film scores, one of which is the Tin Star Liverpool one, and I released uh, last year the score to Surge mm -hmm. with Ben Wishaw by um, Japanese composer, Tajiko Noriko and uh, Paul Davis, who was a sound designer, which again really appealed to me because a bit like the Walter Murch thing, this sort of beautiful marrying of composed music with sound design and how they sort of bled that together and the com comp composed music and, and, and the sound design sort of merged in a way that you couldn't really tell where one began and one ended. So yeah, that's constructive. And do you tend to sound design your own soundtracks? Um, I... I do sort of, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like I said, things like Tin Star, because they just didn't, they, they had, they, there was more of a kind of, the music did a lot of the lifting, so there was not an atmosphere, you know, it wasn't something like Chernobyl where there is an atmosphere which permeates the whole thing, which you could sort of sound design. The, 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 the world, sound worlds were very different from episode to episode. But yeah, I'm interested in it. I mean, I've worked with Chris, the last season of Tin Star, I worked with Chris, who I've worked with, uh, releasing his records and doing some of his sound pieces in galleries and stuff. I've worked with him for quite a few years, so, you know, we did a little bit of work together on that, but it was, um, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't, it was a very subtle bit of sound design. It wasn't really the main focus of the music. I wanted to, I saw that, found this quote, um, utilising a 12-piece string section alongside brass, percussion and inner-city field recordings. Corker creates an urban tone poem of drip, drip, tension and creeping dread that moves from the slow-motion impressionism of Toru Takemetsu to the wintry string drones of Richard Skelton, simultaneously serving the demands of a mainstream TV drama while dismantling the tradition. I don't know who wrote that. Andrew but... Mal, thank you very much, Andrew. <laughs> it was a very nice thing you said there. Yeah, well, I think it, it sums it up too. I think it reflects it really well. So let's hear a piece of your music and it's called Dead Cattle. from Tin Star to Way of the Morris and the piece is called Strip Willow. So set this up for us because it sounds, again, I've only seen a trailer, but... Um, oh, a friend of mine is an actor, Tim Plester, and he also directed this strange little documentary quite a few years ago. So when I started writing music on my own, this is one of the first things that I did and I was uh, lecturing at Plymouth University on film composition as well at the same time. So I remember sort of travelling down with a laptop on the train 
writing a lot of this music and um this was this yes it was a film about morris dancing which i have no real interest in um but he's it was it's a very interesting film itself and tim's a, is a really lovely guy and it's kind of linked sort of england's folk past and tries to sort of stitch it together into a sort of different narrative um and you know again the music was very varied what i ended up being able to do for it um and this piece i think was maybe some recordings of morris dancing music that was then chopped up in ableton and sort of you know processed and looped into this arrangement so it's it's kind of taken sort of field recordings or or you know the recordings of the actual film and turning it into sort of a piece of composed music Willow from Way of the Morris. Somebody wanted to find that. Is it fairly easy to track down online, do you think? Yeah, no. Um, the film or the, the, or film. the soundtrack. The well, film both. is, I think, yeah, readily available. Um, I don't know on what streaming platform, but I imagine it, it, it's, it's available. And the album came out on Johnny Trunk's label. So there's actually a CD of it. Um, it's Way of the Morris um, on a label called OST, I think. Johnny Trunk has a label Trunk Records, which people might know, but then he set up that label. And I don't know whether he's released other stuff on it, but the idea is he was going to release new film soundtracks, not just reissues, which is what Trunk does amongst other music. So, yeah, yeah. I've, I've been in touch with Johnny in the past and I've been researching music for film. It's very yeah, useful. Exactly. And he does very funny email uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, send-outs. So the next piece is, um, it's credited as Corker Conboy. Now, Conboy is your friend who you work with way back Yeah, then. I mean, we got, I got into film music because I used to work with a musician called Paul Conboy and we did different uh, sort of musical, we had a couple of different musical acts, one of which was Corker Conboy. Uh, which was sort of, you know, sort of post-rock, sitting in a council flat in Stockwell. Um, and we also wrote film music together. The first film we did was for Antonia Bird's film Face, which you mentioned earlier. She heard some of our early music, and um, I worked with her up to her death a few years ago. Um, but, yeah, this film... Is this Radiant Idiot? Yes. So this was um, directed by Antonia, and it was... It was a... Str it was a film called The Hamburg Cell. It was a piece of music at the end of The Hamburg Cell, which uh, uh, is when the the uh, terrorists take off from the airport and that's the end of the film and flying into the Twin Towers. So this piece of music, which we'd already written, was chosen by Antonia because it's basically The Hamburg Cell. It was about the cell that, you know, hijacked the planes and flew into the, the Twin Towers. I mean, she was a very political filmmaker, Antonia, and I think, you know, she wanted to tell the story. Um, of from that particular angle and it was a very interesting project uh, and yeah this is the end piece of music which if you said to me you've got to write the music for like you know terrorists taking off from the airport getting on the plane and it ends with all the real footage of what happened on 9-11 I wouldn't have been able to do it because it would just been too much uh, but she found this piece of music we'd already written and we re-recorded it and this is the piece yeah <laughs> 
And you just were talking about working with Paul Conboy, and I wondered, sort of jumping back before that, so what did you actually go into music school, or are you a self-taught musician? Or no, I was at University of Manchester, and I was studying literature. I was always playing music. I come from Sheffield, so you know there was a culture of electronic music from being very young and. You know, I remember um, having very basic drum machines and bits of electronic equipment that I always experimented with as a kid. And then, you know, I did other things. Now, so I didn't study music, but I studied uh, instruments. I played instruments, um, different instruments, piano, guitar, flute that I studied. Um, and so, yeah, I, I was at Manchester, though, and it was that point where electronic music was starting to take off. Um, you know, you had Atari games, computers and Akai samplers and suddenly you could make a record, which is what we did. And a lot of other people did. And um, that's really how we found a way into doing film music, you know, because just through those bits of very... And well, they weren't so cheap. Well, the Akai wasn't so cheap back then. The Atari games computer was. But you didn't need all the costs that, you know, obviously film music had up to that point, you know, incurred. You know, you'd need to get in rooms and you need to have lots of you know, players, and there was a certain production cost and quality to the music that suddenly you could bypass for a few years. I mean, we always kind of worked with musicians. We always played as well. Um, but, yeah, but I wasn't, uh, I'm not a kind of, um, you know, I didn't study at any, uh, you know, university music. But you soaked it up from the ambience of being in Manchester at that really pivotal time. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, and then later, obviously, I worked with, uh, most of the people I work with now are, are, are you know, kind of Guildhall or Royal College of Music or Conservatoire trained a lot of the players so you know infinitely more trained in music than me but there's a weird crossover that that kind of early electronic you know scene well it, it wasn't the beginning of electronic music but that period in the 80s or 90s there's a fascination with that from a lot of people who come from more of a classical background and I was always drawn to that world or the world of you know sort of players uh, because I'd come from a different tradition. And so there's a kind of crossover, which I think, you know, has been quite fertile at times. Mm, I'd say so. So let's go to the next film, which is The Have Not, and it's the Lock Groove theme. Oh, yeah. So tell us a little bit, because according to, I think, on Faber Music website, I was reading about your style, it's this locked final groove. Well, I just have a... F I, I tend to work with what I have to hand quite often. I mean, I use electronics, but... I'm kind of got quite interested in electronics, electronic effects and textures from kind of mechanical processes. So, you know, things that move and grind. And a friend of mine had, or still has, uh, a cutting lathe in his living room. So I could record lots of sounds and then go into his, use his cutting lathe to cut onto acetate, different sounds, acoustic sounds, electronic sounds, and then make a lock groove out of it, which is the bit at the end of the record, which stops the needle going into the centre. And you can cut that in the middle of a record and make these different loops. And I just got quite fascinated by it because it's very unpredictable. It's a bit like, you know, throwing paint at a, a wall. You never knew quite what effect you were going to get and what rhythms and what time signatures. And, and also if you record it onto acetate and then replayed it back into the computer, the needle of the, the stylus of the record player would would uh, wear down the record, so you'd get these weird sort of effects as the as the as the grooves got eroded. So I I kind of did a bit of that and then sort of wrote for and worked with 
instrumentalists to write pieces around some of these um, effects. And the Have Nots film has a connection to the one we were just talking about with the, the 9-11 connection. Yeah, so Antonio had directed uh, the film before, The Hamburg Cell. The cinematographer was Florian Hofmeister, who also was the, uh, was the director of The Have Nots. So he's a cinematographer. I mean, he did the cinematography for Tar, for example, recently. But he's a director as well. So the two films that he's done as a director, uh, we, I've scored the latest one, The Have Nots, uh, on my own. And then the one that we did previously with him, a film called Three Degrees Cold, which I think we might play later, was with Paul Convoy as well. So, yeah. Let's hear it. You can find the have-nots online if you search. Yeah, that was released on SM Variations. That was a film score that came out um, yeah, a few years ago. And then Tin Star Liverpool, which is the one that released on the other newer label, is also available all on Bandcamp. If you Google my name, I guess, hopefully, yeah, they'll come up somewhere. Well, I was intrigued here just to, as we were listening to that piece that you've got some of those lovely yellow vinyl of Tin Star available. So. Oh, fluorescent, yeah. I don't know how... Uh, how uh, on trend coloured vinyl is anymore <laughs> there was a point when it was but things move fast these days but yeah there are some some of the tin star scores still available i think yeah. but is that the liverpool one tin star liverpool yeah which is the third season so the first two seasons of tin star were set in canada and then the third season it moved to liverpool so it's tin star three really but it got called tin star liverpool and is it very different I have, i'm only on you know the first <laughs> series yeah. so yeah, it's different. Yeah, I mean, it was. Um, I mean, obviously, kind of just the location changes things, and I think there was, as is usual with these big, big box sets, there was some changes in personnel as well, and, um, and you know, just musically, yeah, it felt very different because a lot of the, the kind of things that you could do when you've got this sort of Canadian, uh, strange small town, sort of wilderness setting, suddenly going into gritty Liverpool, it's kind of a different world. I think I, I read here that. Um some of the recordings and ensembles were recorded in London and then replayed and re-recorded. Oh, yeah. Or worldized, Walter Murch term there. Well, yeah, again, buildings. I guess my... F <laughs> yeah, because that was with Chris Watson. So oh, OK. Just did lots of little sketches and then we'd go into some of the locations where, you know, the settings for uh, different scenes in the film and just replay the piece of music in some... So you get the... Uh, reverberant sound of the room different spaces on the music and re-recording it using chris's uh, special 360 degree microphone i mean it was very subtle in the end you know but it was just for me just trying to explore different processes because i quite like you know the worst thing is just staring at a screen i try to get sort of processes that you know can create interesting material from the off and try and come up with different processes like a lot of composers it's no different to a lot of other people um but that yeah that was one of the processes i used trying to generate some inspiration at the beginning of tin star liverpool and i was wondering do you sometimes find when you're approaching a project for the first time do you think about process before you think about character genre tone of the music itself I think it's all of it and you know it sometimes it's all happening at the same time some sometimes it depends as well you know because things like tin star were really great you know the producers allowed me 
uh, particularly by the third season, you know, to be kind of quite exploratory. So you can then go and you can do things which might not necessarily have a kind of justifiable outcome just to see what might happen. I mean, that's quite rare these days. Mm. There's, you know, the turnovers are quite fast and you have to, you know, deliver the music, um, you know, to order, which is, is the nature of it. Um, but, you know, I mean, I, you know, I study literature, so I'm always, you know, the script, but it's also, you know, is a major part. But, you know, I've also learned over the years that what you end up seeing in the script sometimes bears very little resemblance because, you know, you read the script and you start making the film or the show in your head of what this might be. But then there's other people who take that script and do do their versions of it. Uh, so... But yeah, it's all of it really. Um, you know, I've done films where you know you write kind of traditional stuff and you do it character by character. Um, but it depends. Mm, it depends on the freedom, I guess you're, you're given. Freedom, time, and yeah, what the director wants. Exactly. Well, Adrian, it's been a pleasure to meet you and to have you here on Soho Radio's Composers on Film. My thanks to Lola and Soho Radio, and we're going to go out with a track called Marimba and. ACC, ACC, I think. Yes. I think that was one of those lazy titles where there was probably the computer file name <laughs> and we never never la labelled it properly, never gave it a proper name. But it's you and Paul Combay again. Yeah, from what I remember, this piece was, yeah, it was Florian Hoffmeister's first film, Three Degrees Cold, which was a German language art house film. And um, this piece, I think from what I remember, I played guitar, overdubbed lots of lines on the guitar, which were then... Um, basically notated or transcribed for the Nuremberg Symphony Orchestra, which in itself was quite a strange uh, sort of, you know, conversion from my bad guitar playing to these incredibly professional symphonic players from Germany. And that's really what this piece is. Well, thanks again, Adrian, and thank you to you, dear listener. And uh, don't forget to join me next month for Composers on Film here on Soho Radio.